Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Editor's Desk. I'm Felicity Duncan and with me on the line is Alec Hogg. Alec, uh, we, we didn't chat last weekend because I was up in Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, up in the city of Belfast. And I have to tell you, it was a very, very interesting trip. Now, here in Dublin, we have an enormous amount of construction happening. We, there's, there's cranes as far as the eye can see on the horizon. In fact, I'm told this is the most cranes we've ever had in Dublin, even during the, the Celtic Tiger years. So sort of a lot of construction happening, a lot of companies opening, a lot of uh, little retail stores opening, very vibrant and busy city and a lot of growth. And like going up to Belfast, I was really struck by how much quieter and how much more subdued the city was. And I was, I was walking down some of the big main streets, you know, the big retail streets, and there would be every second building and some of them was too lit. It was vacant. It was boarded up. Uh, there were a lot of buildings that seemed to be almost collapsing and they were being held up by scaffolding, you know, and it was just such a contrast. I mean, these are, the cities are, you know, less than two hours apart by car. And yet economically, they seem to be in such a different place. And it really made me think about the realities of Brexit and what that's going to mean, uh, you know, for Northern Ireland, for the Republic of Ireland. And also, you know, we read a lot about um, deindustrialization in, in parts of the UK. And you read about the struggles of a lot of people who are living not in the main metropolitan area, right? Londoners are doing very well, but outside of London, uh, there's been a lot of service cuts and a lot of uh, poverty, childhood poverty is rearing its head again. Um, and, and it really struck me, you know, driving through Belfast, how real that is and made me think about what Brexit is going to mean for communities that are already uh, in bad shape. It's a brilliant example. And I, I feel that we as journalists sometimes get a little bit too caught up in the theory, in the acad- academic approach towards life and towards what's happening and don't pay enough attention uh, to the thing we should be paying all our attention to, and that's what's happening on the ground. So a trip like that, to me, tells uh, carries so much weight. You see it with your own eyes. You see the contrast between the uncertainty, which uh, exists in the United Kingdom, and the, uh, the, the, the flourishing in Dublin, where people are hedging their bets on a, well, on the one hand, hedging their bets on a hard Brexit, on the other hand, saying, well, here's another English-speaking city in Europe which will remain part of the European Union and will be able to serve the, the role that London had in the past. And it, it's interesting from my side, Felicity, we are, as you know, um, coming to the end of our three-year adventure in the UK, establishing our business here and, and setting our hard currency revenue streams up for business, anti-fragiling the business, if you like, and on our way home at the end of the month. And talking to vets, because obviously we're taking our two Jack Russells home, uh, the vet says she's never been busier in export of – you have to go through quite a lot of protocols. It's, it's, it's an involved system. It wasn't that difficult coming here, but uh, taking your animals home, not from the South African perspective, but from the UK perspective, is, is there are a lot of hoops to go through. And she says, the vet says, she's never been busier. She's working till 11 o'clock at night doing these kind of things like what we're busy with. Talking to the removals company, the removals company says they've never had this kind of demand for people or moved as many people out of the UK rather than 
bringing people into the UK. Now, this is the real world. This is where the tacky hits the tar. This is the result, A, of people making their own rational decisions on the way they see their future. Um, we're, a, we're a special instance. We were going to go back home anyway. But for many other people, by being exposed to our journey, we, we're seeing this. And we, we're now getting a, an, an indication of what you saw in Belfast. And it's, it kind of brings it home, doesn't it? It really does, you know. And I was reading last week, or perhaps it was the week before, a brilliant um, op-ed by uh, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, you know, just talking about the, the realities of what Brexit means, whether it's hard or soft. Um, and I think people, you know, People are tired of the process. People, a lot of people are sort of sick of uh, the back and forth and the hemming and hawing. And there's a lot of talk about project fear. But when you see something like that, when you see the real actual state of a place like Belfast, yeah, you know, you think, is it project fear or are we just looking ahead to what it's going to mean to be a country moving towards isolation in an ever more interconnected economy? Right. And, and Martin Wolf was saying, you know, he said, look, the reality is, you know, people talk a lot about how, um, the United Kingdom is the fifth, I think it's the fifth, fifth largest economy in the world. He said he really broke it down and he put, he put into a little graphic, he showed the size of the, uh, the United States, their economy, the size of the Chinese economy and the size of the European Union as a single market, right? So because it's a single market, we treat it as a single economy. Um, and then he showed, the size of Great Britain relative to those. Now, obviously the UK, I mean, is just nowhere near the size of those three big players. It's really a tripolar world, if you think in economic terms. So what does that mean? Well, England is going to be, or rather the United Kingdom, once it leaves, is going to be much like South Africa, a small open economy. And as we know from South Africa's experience, being a small open economy means that you become a rules taker, Right. That you become um, a company, a country that has to uh, bend over backwards a lot in a lot of ways to accommodate the big players, and you have to align yourself with one of the three big players. That's just the reality of dealing with that kind of world. And he said, so looking ahead, you know, the UK is going to regain sovereignty in an important sense, but it is also going to have to decide which of those three poles it's going to align itself to. And uh, as a non-member of the European Union, it's not going to be part of the rules-making process in that uh, economic collective anymore. So it's going to have to say either, you know, we we take our take uh, Greenwich Mean Time from China, we take it from the US, or we take it from Europe without participating in the rules-making process anymore. Um, it was a really interesting article and very worthwhile summary of the realities of what the the decision to leave is going to mean. Now, part of uh, and and that is really fascinating insights there from Martin Wolf and from the way that you've uh, you've contextualised it. What I did this week was, as you well know, thank you for doing the newsletters. They were uh, they were a, a serious upgrade on the normal. <laughs> um, but uh, thank, uh, this week I had uh, a couple of South African friends who now have a business in the United States. And they, they've got a, it's a, it's a significant size business. I think they do about a hundred million dollars a year in turnover. So it's not huge, but it's something that they've built from scratch over the last few years. Again, showing South African ingenuity, but they were visiting here. Very good friend, very close friend of mine. And we went to a factory that uh, they buy from. And it was very 
uh, again, where the tacky hits the tar, you you get to see the reality. The, the, the chaps were obviously showing their products and uh, explaining why their products were better than others and showed us through the factory and the plants and et cetera. And my, my friends buy quite a lot of product from these guys. Uh, and then, of course, I wasn't there as a journalist. I was there as a, as a driver, I suppose, a hanger-on. Um, I asked them, what about Brexit? And it came out in that conversation that they weren't too concerned about it because this is a company that's been around 100 years. It's got a dominant position in the UK market in its field uh, as, as a consequence of that. And we could go into that in, in a lot of detail, but it's hard to, to break into a country where you have uh, incumbents who've been around for a long time. But in 100 years, they've made no acquisitions outside of the UK. But in the last year, they've bought an operation in Germany. And you could read between the lines that the, their thinking is, well, if things go wrong in the UK, which is possible, their factory here, which produces roughly half of its product for the UK market and roughly half for export, would then reduce by half. And the export market would be served from Germany. It would be that simple because if you've got no trade rules or you've got, uh, if you have no longer a duty free access or as you were saying, the muscle that the EU can put onto both China and, uh, and the United States, which Britain will be in no position to make those kind of deals. Well, you're going to be supplying from the most efficient location. That is no longer going to be within the UK. And this put on, switched on quite a few lights for me because there must be many businesses in a similar situation. If you are totally exposed to a market uh, like which Brexit, which at the moment is uh, um, Brexit is going to make you totally exposed to the United Kingdom, then you have to make your plans for what is going to happen if there well once Brexit occurs. And it still appears as though that's likely to happen. It'll be even if it's a soft Brexit, it's going to mean a lot of rechanging of the rules. And business have been complaining and whining, but primarily they've been making plans. We've seen this in the financial services sector, which is a huge chunk of the British economy. And most of those companies, the banks, uh, many of them foreign, that are based in London at the moment are moving, as you see, from the Ukraines to Ireland or elsewhere onto within the European Union. Because when Brexit does occur, they will no longer be able to justify the uh, the setup that they have just for the UK market, and they will need to be able to uh, to get into the international market. So you're seeing – what I saw up close was an example of how a business is rationally acting uh, or acting rationally uh, in the way that it understands the future is looking. And as a consequence of this, you can you can almost – uh, uh, draw a little bit of a line. We don't know. It's a highly complex world. And who knows? The Brits may pull off an absolute miracle and Brexit may be a wonderful thing for the country, as Nigel Farage reckons it will be. But generally speaking, uh, rationality is suggesting if you're not part of the of the big blocks on a trade basis, you are going to be struggling. So if that happens, make sure that you, you aren't exposed to it. So you, you, you're protecting yourselves as British companies are now doing. Interesting real life examples in both instances.
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've seen even here, I know a couple of people who work at places like, um, for example, PwC, you know, those types of uh, uh, financial services adjacent kind of uh, companies that do a lot of back office services. And all of them have said that they've had a lot of people moved into their offices um, or they've been given new, been hiring new people to take on some of the functions that they would have been doing uh, historically in London. And we've also read, of course, that about a trillion pounds has moved out of the UK. So only a couple of thousand jobs so far. It's not looking too bad. But I think that's an important thing. A trillion pounds worth of uh, assets have been moved out and seeded into offices in in Europe and primarily Frankfurt, Dublin and um, Paris. And, uh, and a lot of new staff has been hired there. So it's going to be a slow puncture, you know, for the city of London. They're not necessarily going to collapse. That's, that's not what, what we're talking about here. What we're saying is the growth is going to be in these other offices. New hires are going to be happening outside of London. London will keep doing what it's doing, but, uh, the big uh, financial services companies are going to say, well, what's our best bet? Is it to set up in the UK where there's going to be whatever happens, even a great smooth soft Brexit is going to mean uncertainty because the UK is going to be negotiating trade deals for the next however many years. Uh, so do we do move there where there's going to be uncertainty or do we move somewhere where we know what the regulatory framework is going to be like? And so, you know, exactly what you're saying, like you saw with your friend and like I'm seeing here with these offices growing uh not a, nothing dramatic, but when companies are looking ahead five and ten years, their growth plans are shifting and their investment plans are shifting from the domestic market out into some of these uh, European cities where they know what they're going to be getting. Um, yeah, I love that. That's slow puncture. And when you when you go around London, you still see cranes, but remembering that that construction is uh, the result of decisions that were taken some time ago. But but talking about a slow puncture. And, uh, and and a blowout. <laughs> How are we doing with Eskom? I know I, while I was traveling around the, the, the country um, showing my friends the sites and visiting a factory or two, um, you did take in Pravin Gordon, the new um, public enterprises minister's presentation on Eskom. And, and I'd be fascinated to hear what you thought. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I think, you know, Watching, it was quite a long presentation and also in true Pravin God style, it was extremely complex in parts. So if you had to know a lot about how electricity works. Um, but watching that, it was just such a, a, a reassuring change of, of enormous magnitude compared to what we've been seeing previously in discussions about ESCOM. You know, first of all, Godan said, you know, I'm going to report back to you in a week or two weeks. Uh, I'm going to come back to you with a plan and tell you what's happened. And he did it, right? He, he Within that time allotted, he put together this presentation and he reported back. Uh, and he reported back the detailed steps of the plan. He also explained exactly what went wrong when we were experiencing the, you know, level four, level five load shedding. Um, and made some uh, promises that didn't seem to be outside of the realm of possibility. He said, look, if we implement this plan as it is laid out, uh, we are going to have no load shedding over the winter or at worst stage one load shedding if, you know, something blows up or what have you, right? Um, so he gave uh, South Africans a, a real promise that he can be held accountable to. And he also had um, representatives from ESCOM, including a gentleman whose name I've forgotten, but uh, an operational guy, an, an engineer who seemed like a very smart technocrat who was there to say, look, this is the reality. This is what we're doing. These are the plans, you know? Um, 
So it's just trying to, you know, we desperately need this more technocratic and less political and emotional approach to managing things, right? Because, you know, ESCOM is a political crisis. Yes, I, I think it is. And I think that that's fair to say. But the solution to ESCOM is in large part a technical solution, right? We need to just make this company work properly. And it's so reassuring to see some informed, serious-minded technocrats taking on the challenge and saying, look, we're going to fix this. It's, it's busted, but we can fix it. Here's how we're going to fix it. And now we've told you, so you can hold us accountable to that. So a real refreshing change of pace from my perspective. And and classic Gordon, isn't it? Mm. It's exactly what he did at the um, at, at South African Revenue Services when he was there. He went in as, a, uh, as an ex-politician or as a politician. He was seconded to SARS. He, he went into SARS, spent a year uh, as the deputy or as the um, uh, designated uh, commissioner, took over as the commissioner. And after he took over, he started hiring the right people, listening to the right people. And that's probably his genius, is that the humility of Gordon allows him to, um, to, to, to listen to people who are smarter than him, surround himself with those who know a lot more about the subject that he's dealing with at that point in time. And then he can support them and back them and lead them because if he understands what they're telling him, he can then pass it on to the rest of us. I love that. And thanks for sharing that with us, Felicity. I, I do get quite concerned at the, uh, um, again, getting back to those people who, who make decisions in air-conditioned offices about things they know little, about the risks that, that to which they're not personally exposed. Uh, that seems to have been what's happened very much in Eskom in the past. Where uh, and it got it got worse because there was corruption and all kinds. Of, it it kind of went right off the scale. But when you bring it back to reality, there's Gordon. He's sitting with the, the the guys who physically have to go and understand how these plants work and understand what happened when Hitachi was fired and a, a Mitsubishi were brought in to look after the boilers, for instance. Hitachi built the boilers one way. Mitsubishi didn't know what the boilers looked like inside there, so. When something breaks, how the heck do you fix it kind of thing? So there's, there's always this interventionist approach, this let's change things, sometimes not for, for the, the, the reasons that are fully uh, understood and appreciated. Uh, yet here we've got a guy who, who does have political clout, does have the ear uh, of the president, and is prepared uh, because of his personal humility to listen to those who really know what's going on and not to be swayed by the noise that one sees in the media and by the uh, instant pundits. So it's, it's great progress. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one is available it's up on uh, the premium section of biznews.com. Remember, you can sign up to premium. It's just five pounds a month, and that subscription is going to give you access to all our great content and full digital access to the Wall Street Journal. 